Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the deacons in the church. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, privileged to be able to uh, preach God's word to you this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at two passages. Um, it's mainly at John chapter 3, but um, I'm just going to read also a parallel passage from the Old Testament in Numbers 21. So I'll just read the passage and then we'll pray and get going. Uh, this passage from Numbers 21 is talking about Moses leading the people, uh, the Hebrew people, uh, through the desert. It's Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Eden, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, they bit the, uh, among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten... When he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And our second passage is um, again mainly in John three, but I just wanted to include a couple of verses just before that as well. So starting John two, verse twenty-three. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this, these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has descended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God who speaks to us through your word and also through the preaching of your words. Uh, We pray that you'd help me to be faithful to what um, your word says and that each of us this morning would have the ears to hear uh, that we would receive this good gospel news uh, with gracious hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, well, this morning we're um, continuing this brief period of time where we're looking at a few passages of encouragement from the Christian faith. Uh, so a few weeks ago, Pete looked at uh, the promise of our future hope, uh, then Hintai spoke about our current rest, and Carl spoke last week of the peace that we have with, uh, the joy that we have from the peace uh, with God that we get. And today we'll look at the promise that we have of eternal life. Um, but I guess I think <laughs> eternal life feels quite sort of far off and distant right now um, in January 2021 in London. And I just want to start with a question to you, which is this, what what do you think is the biggest problem with the world? What's the biggest threat in the world at this moment? And what is the solution to it? Of course, you'd give many answers, I'm sure. COVID pandemic, um, certainly with the mortality and the economic crisis we've seen from that. You could talk about the societal divisions of politics, race, cultural, um, environmental crises with climate change. You could add personal things as well, poverty, relationship breakdown, uh, ill health, addictions. And there's, there's various groups in society which sort of you know, rise up against these things um, and propose solutions to them. You know, so people would say, oh, we need more government funding or we need some more law or legislation on this. Um, or we need international agreements to, to fight these things. Um, or maybe we just, we just need to raise awareness. We need, we need to educate people better. And for sure, we can debate these things all day long. And, uh, but what I want to say is that that approach is, is very humanistic. Um, and what I mean by that is that the idea that all the problems in the world are, are kind of external to us or, or driven by society in, in some way um, maybe society being kind of poorly organised or unjust, perhaps. The, the solution proposed is that, well, if only we were more united, better organised, more just, then, then 
then actually that would be the solution to all our problems. Well, no doubt it would be a much better world if that were the case. But would it solve all of our problems? Because I think this is the claim of, of secular humanism, which in a way is the religion of our, of our age. Um, you know, we, we hear it in the news, we see it in our films, it drives our assumptions in our workplaces. Yeah, the idea that this is that, that humanity is capable of overcoming all our problems. It's just a matter of time. With progress, we will get there. We will make it. We're constantly reminded of the amazing human progress that has happened over the recent centuries, almost to a kind of religious nature. Just look at what humanity has achieved. Isn't it wonderful? If we just keep going, we will get there. Put your faith in, in humanity to solve these problems. This is one answer, the problem being external in society and the solution is that humanity will overcome eventually. But today we'll look at Jesus' answer to what the biggest problem is in the world and the proposed solution. And to get into that, we're going to look at two passages which look at also dark times in history as well. So we'll start with that passage in Numbers uh, 21, Despair in the Desert. Let me tell you the story. So hundreds of years before that time, God chose uh, that patriarch Abraham and made promise to him that we had given many descendants and that these people would be made into a great nation, God's people. They were travelling around a bit and there was then a famine and uh, they ended up uh, moving to the land of Egypt under Joseph. Um, but that generation then passed away and... There was a new generation, and uh, the Pharaoh at that time enslaved the people of Israel, uh, the Hebrew people, and uh, they, they then cried out to God, and he delivered them. This was the time which Moses was then born, um, through the plagues and the Red Sea, the Passover, delivers them. And they're going to the promised land, but they haven't got there yet. They're in the wilderness, and they've got hostile nations all around them, and they're there for 40 years wandering. And it's at this point that we come to our story today, where we see that they were hungry. Um, now, this has happened before. The people um, have been hungry many times, and they cry out to the Lord. The Lord, first of all, gave them bread to eat, manna, and even meat as well, and quail as well. So he, he provided for them food, constantly delivered for them. Do they remember it? No. Uh, and the interesting thing about this story is that they're not actually hungry, they're just bored of the food. So what do they say? They say, there's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. So there is food, so they just don't like it. But before that, they actually say to God, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is quite a remarkable thing for them to say. And, and sadly, again, they've said that as well a number of times through. It betrays, it betrays a lack of faith. In their eyes, there's no alternative explanation for why they're there than that they're going to end up dying. That's their only way they can see it. And in the same way, um, there's no solution to their possible problem. They thought they're stranded. This is it. The time has come. So they just complain to God. What was the point? of taking us out of Egypt in the first place if we're just going to die. 
you've got to think how how have they got his, how have they come to this place like are they having a memory blank or something because this happened a number of times and each time God has reacted in the same two ways really he he lovingly provides for them and gives them what they need protecting them from their enemies and giving them food and water but he also brings um, he also disciplines them as well and what I mean by that is you see God loves them so much he cares for them that he hates the fact that they are um, you know, ignorant and forgetting of how much he loves them so he, he disciplines them to sort of shake them into repentance as it were so the Hebrew people are despairing in the desert they don't like the food and they don't have faith in God so hold that thought as we fast forward to our other passage and we're going to sort of go through in parallel uh, our other passage in John's Gospel so again this gets us up to speed where we are there so God the Father has sent his son into the world. That's in John chapter 1. You read that at Christmas time. The word becoming flesh, light shining in the darkness. Then goes on to John the Baptist, who is proclaiming that Jesus is the one who has come. And, um, and he's trying to set the scene for, you know, we, we can really trust Jesus, we can believe in him. That then goes into chapter 2, where Jesus starts to do some miracles. He turns water into wine. And then he clears the temple from these money lenders who are, um, are just trying to make money in the temple courts. And he um, uh, you're basically claiming a level of spiritual authority, which is bound to get people wondering who he is. So then no surprise, as we come to our passage today, you start to see some people beginning to put their faith in Jesus. But the question is, why are they believing? And it seems that they're believing because of the signs that Jesus has done, which may seem reasonable to us. Yeah, oh, Jesus has done these impressive signs, so we should believe. But as we read, Jesus knew all people and what was in man. And at the end of chapter two there, it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It seems that Jesus was concerned that this supposed faith that they had suddenly developed in response to these miracles was, was actually maybe just because they were imp- a bit impressed, but that they hadn't actually yet found true faith in Jesus himself. So that sets the scene for this interesting nighttime encounter with this senior spiritual leader, Nicodemus. And he seems to start off in the same way. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So in his usual manner, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter and announces that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It's not enough just to be impressed and conclude Jesus is this teacher come from God. You must be born again. Now clearly there's about as much confusion back then as there is today as to what it means to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get us off to the best start, thinking it's just a physical rebirth, although he rightly explains how that'd be physically impossible, uh, anatomically, and presumably very painful as well. Uh, Jesus is disappointed that the spiritual leadership have not understood what he's talking about. Uh, and the reason for this is Jesus here is talking about a prophecy that came in Ezekiel 36. 
uh, where the prophet announces God's promise to the Jewish people in exile. I'm just going to change this camera because it's very slightly, it's very slightly off, and I can't cope with that. So that's better. Um, sorry. So Ezekiel 36. Um, this is what the prophet said that God said to God's people in Israel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So with this reference to water and the spirit in this passage, Jesus is is pointing to uh, the regenerating work of the spirit prophesied all those years ago. So yes, we've all been born of the flesh, but we need to be born of the spirit as well. Um, and yeah, for sure we can say more about being born again, but for now we can just say that being born again is, is the same as becoming a Christian, of putting your faith in Jesus. And Jesus concludes, concludes this little section by saying, using a little bit of Greek word play, so the word for wind and spirit in Greek is the same. And I think the point he's trying to make is that it just says we can't control the wind. You know, we're not in control of the work of the spirit. This regenerating work is, is a work of the spirit himself. Okay, so what is the connection of this passage with the passage in Numbers? Well, just as there was despair in the desert and God's people were in a dark place then, they're in a dark place here as well. They're all over the place, aren't they? There's some people interested in his ministry just because they're impressed by the miracles. But little sign of genuine faith. And the spiritual leaders are confused. You know, they should have been like John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus who is a, a, um, who is come. Uh, but instead they stand by as people uh, let greed rather than praise take over the temple courts. The best we get is Nicodemus. Um, I mean, at least he recognises there's something going on in Jesus, but feels the need to come at night, presumably for fear of his fellow leaders. So as we pause at the end of this first point, uh, the lack of faith, it's worth reflecting on how we're doing today in 2021. How are we responding in faith? Now, I don't know your personal struggles, uh, but I can say it for me, I'm definitely finding this lockdown affecting me more than previous ones. I think times like these test our faith. It can reveal if we're just in this for the good times, like those Hebrew people just waiting for the promised land. But when hard times hit, the doubts pour in and we grumble against the Lord. You know, really, Lord, another lockdown? Like another job that I've not been given, not, not been successful in? A health scare now? Is this for real? Well, I think in the last few years in church, we've, um, many people in church have experienced a great deal of personal suffering in various ways. Certainly that's true for Hannah and me. Um, and one joy that we've discovered in the Bible is that there, there is a place for a godly complaint to the Lord. And that is the role of lamenting. 
It's where we cry out to God and ask those difficult questions. But different to those Hebrew people in the desert, the reason we cry is because we ultimately know that God loves us, that he's in control, and he has a good purpose for us. And that can actually bring a profound comfort during those times. Uh, because we're able to entrust ourselves to the Lord in the expectation that he will help us. So that process of lament in its darkest moments can feel an awful lot like full-on doubts and unbelief. But as that process carries forth, it drives forward to a, a faith which is actually much deeper. So, yes, pers- our personal suffering that we experience can sometimes cause us, it seems, to have a lack of faith. But lament provides a path through that darkness. But there's two other areas that can cloud our faith during these times. And one of them is idols which compete for our faith. And the other is the fear of judgment. We'll come on to that fear of judgment in a minute, but for now we'll talk about those idols. So what do I mean by idols? I don't mean a statue, but in much the same way as the idols and gods of the Old Testament times. These idols are things that we become dependent on. We entrust ourselves to them. Essentially, they make some sort of promise of salvation to us, and we... Uh, become dependent on them. So, for example, it might be a job that you are expected to sacrifice all your time, sacrifice your family for, in the hope that you will get some big high position, earn lots of money, have a great retirement. Or, it just might be the presumption that you will remain physically healthy for a long time into the future, and if you're not, that the NHS will be there for you. Or another case would be that this hope and um, you're staking your hope on that, that all the big problems in life will be overcome for you through human progress, as we saw earlier. Uh, you know, in a way, the belief in human ability and progress to overcome all our struggles is, is really a massive idol in our culture. Um, you can see why you would believe that to be true, though, because depending on which metrics you used, Um, there has been a lot of progress over the recent centuries. And I think, yes, there's always reasons to be pessimistic, of course, but I think there was a general kind of feeling of optimism that, you know, we are going to make, we're going to turn things around, things are going to improve in general. Well, that was the case until 2020 happened. I think that optimism kind of persisted through January. You know, China felt very far away and SARS never really affected us back then, so everything's kind of going to be fine. And February came and it started to wane a little bit, the optimism, as we heard what happened in Italy. And then March, March 2020, when our world was turned upside down. I remember thinking so clearly in March that, wow, that all of these kind of idols that we depend on, the, you know, that we put our, can put our trust in, our hope in, whether that be the government, NHS, the economy, our jobs, our physical health, everything that we've relied on to guarantee our personal 
comfortable lives or quiet lives. They've just been taken away. They've been, been destroyed almost, it seems. Surely this will be a time when people turn to the Lord and cry out to their maker to help them. And for a while, I, I, I thought that might be what would happen. Uh, we had this hope and uh, we even thought of how are we going to engage with all the hundreds of people that will be tuning into our YouTube channels. Well, March gave way to April. And as we eased back from the brink, it kind of felt like society just took a collective breath in and just said, keep calm and carry on. This idea that, you know, we, we came face to face with how weak some of these things are that we put our hope in and depended on. And instead of using it as an opportunity to think about something else to put our hope in instead, we just decided to strengthen them more. So as our hospitals were being threatened with being overwhelmed, we built more and locked down to protect the NHS. As we were struggling to come up with solutions what we're going to do with COVID, we pursued scientific solutions. We made a vaccine, which Chris Whitty tells us is our only hope. That's his words. This is spiritual language. Our only hope is in the vaccine. And we embraced community spirit. Tesco gave all their staff those T-shirts. Uh, Together we can do this. And um, it seemed that kind of basically that fall of that humanistic idol lasted about a month before I woke up again and shouted even louder that, yes, humanity can overcome. We will do this. We need to stick together and keep going. Now, let me be very clear about this. There is much to be celebrated in these things. The, the sacrifice of the key workers, many key workers, has been very humbling. The scientific achievements have been really impressive. And the community spirit has been really refreshing. And I know many of us have been involved in these things in formal or informal ways. There's much to be celebrated as a gift from God. But what I'm trying to say is that if you put your hope in those things alone to get us through this crisis and, and all of these crises, you will be disappointed. So our first point is looking at the lack of faith that we see in the world. The Hebrews despairing in the desert and the lack of faith that we saw in Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And we've looked at how we struggle ourselves uh, with our personal suffering and also how those competing idols can compete for our, our faith in them instead. But I said there's that other reason that we struggle to have faith, and that's for fear of judgment. So we'll move on to our second point, which is the warning of judgment. And the point here is that the lack of faith that we've seen is actually a real problem. Let's return to our two passages. So numbers. The people are grumbling because they don't like the food. And God responds by sending them fiery serpents. They bit the people and they died. Imagine the scene. It's not in the best of conditions. Um, thousands and thousands of people moving through the desert. You know, there's no antidote or hospital there. You know, things are pretty bleak. And, and you get this invasion of serpents that come to attack you. The situation has gone from bad to worse. And how do 
did they respond? How would you respond? This is what happens in Numbers 21, verse 7. It says, The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So the people sin, God responds in judgment with the fiery serpents. And this is a small picture of the reality of God's judgment. That those who do not believe will not be saved, but rather will face judgment. Jesus says himself in John chapter 3 verse 18, whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned. Now this is not a popular topic, but before you run out the door or turn off your computer, pay attention that this is not the final word on the matter. We're only on point two of three. The first point was the longest, by the way. You see, judgment here serves as a warning to both them and to us. The Hebrew people needed to learn that their lack of faith was not just some little blemish, but was actually a deadly threat to their existence. See, if God withdrew his provision from them, the fiery serpents would be the last of their worries. They would soon starve with lack of bread and water. The hostile nations around them would attack them without the provision and the care he had to defend them. His people failed to remember his love and he needed to shake them into repentance here. But Jesus, in our passage in John, gives actually a firmer warning, one of eternal significance. So rather than focusing on earthly prospects, Jesus explains that our eternal fate is dependent on whether we believe in him or not. He says this, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is what Jesus' answer is to the biggest problem in the world. Not that none of those other things don't matter, but that this is the fundamental problem, our lack of faith, our sin in not believing in Jesus. So what is the explanation that Jesus gives for why people don't believe? He goes on to say this. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light unless his works should be exposed. So basically because Jesus is light we are scared that our evil works would be exposed if we come to him. This is a very significant point. He's saying that by nature, we do evil works, and by nature, we therefore run away from Jesus. So Jesus upsets all of our sensitivities by not only talking about people being condemned, but by saying that we do evil works. And um, I think these are points that are strongly denied in our, in our society. Um, to quote Tesco again, um, they told us in their Christmas ad that there's no naughty list this year. And to be honest, I think many people would agree with that. Um, yeah, there's no such thing as being naughty really anyway, and there's certainly no list. Um, but deep down, when we stop pretending, do, do we not admit that actually we're not as good as we make out? The problem is that there's no solution on offer to this problem of our sin. 
So we do evil works and we know it's a problem, but there's no solution in modern society. There's no cleansing or forgiveness for the human soul. Instead, what we do is we tend to just lower the bar. So we justify all sorts of things. So you, you can say, well, whatever makes you happy, or you know, each for their own, or, oh, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm allowed to do this for every now and again. Yeah. Ultimately, I think it comes down to a problem of self-esteem. See, our personal happiness is so important to us that we can't contemplate disrupting that. And we know that you know, this, the idea of having low self-esteem is a, is a real threat to... Um, would you know, would cause real psychological torment. The truth of our sin is too much for us to bear. So with no option to deal with it, we need to deny it. We see the, Chris, the Christian gospel does present a solution to this problem. You see, basically, the problem of our sin is a very serious problem. And a very serious problem needs a very serious solution to it. You don't have a very serious solution to your problem. Better to just try and deny that you have a problem at all. If I can adapt a popular phrase of saying, if you can't fix it, better to just say it ain't broke. So what Jesus is doing, he's shining a big light on the evil of the human heart, on all of our hearts. I think it's only fair to ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, so you are confronting me with my sin that I spend most of my life trying to deny. You better have a solution to this because I'm not willing to go there otherwise. Well, let's see. <coughs> We've spoken about <coughs> the lack of faith. <coughs> we spoke about the warning of judgment. And our third point, the promise <coughs> of eternal life. Back to Moses and the fiery serpents. They grumble because they don't like the food. The Lord sent those fiery serpents in judgment. And now they repent and cry for salvation. We get an odd solution. So God says this. God says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So just as God was in control of those serpents in the first place and sending them, he's in control of this miraculous cure as well. I mean, clearly miraculous, just the idea of just looking at this bronze serpent from a distance would be enough to heal you from some... Uh, deadly snake venom. Uh, I can't understand any mechanism other than miraculous cure for that. It's so simple as well. There's no big sacrifice involved. There's no cost or payment that you have to make for for getting saved in this way. It's simply look and live. So how interesting that Jesus would then pick this story to help Nicodemus understand more about what Jesus came to do. So back to John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So referring to himself as the son of man, as he often did, Jesus is basically saying this, just as the people in the desert needed to look to the bronze serpent to save them from the serpents there, in the same way, God's people today and all time facing judgment need to look to the Son of Man, Jesus, lifted up. Because by looking to Jesus, you'll have eternal life and not perish. This is a remarkable claim that just by looking to Jesus we will have eternal life and not perish. How on earth could that be the case? And the key is in Jesus being lifted up. So when, when, when was Jesus lifted up? Well, yes, he, he was lifted up after his resurrection. You can read in Acts chapter 1, he was lifted up and taken into heaven, into the clouds, um, in his ascension, glorified eternally. Well, yes, but... There's, there's a double meaning here. So we can see as we look at a couple of other passages in John, John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, so, but the, the Pharisees didn't lift Jesus up to, to heaven. So some, something else is going on. And then again in chapter 12, 32, Jesus says this, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John then says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this is a lifting up, it's to do with Jesus dying. So just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the desert, Jesus Christ was lifted up on that cross of wood as he was crucified and died. So it's indeed true that sin leads to judgment or lack of faith leads to judgment but the question is who is judged again Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world as we come to terms with our own sin we need to look to Jesus and ask him to take it from us to ask Jesus to face the judgment instead of us that we deserved this, this is what it means to believe in Jesus. It, it doesn't mean to believe that he existed or that he was a good person or did impressive things, miracles. It means that you are entrusting your life to him. It's saying, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to deny that I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm actually happy to admit it because actually I know that in, in Jesus, I'm, I'm fully forgiven. He's fully forgiven me and paid for my sins. And, and what's more, I'm not going to go and try and earn my salvation myself. I've wholly entrusted my life, my salvation to Jesus. So I'm not going to try and earn it by, by being a good person or, or doing good works in that way. I'm wholly dependent on Jesus as the only solution. This is what faith in Jesus is looking to Jesus lifted up for our salvation. And we must look to Jesus only, not to ourselves pretending that we are better than we know we are or 
that we can earn our salvation in some ways. See, that, that, that is what you have to do if you don't have a good enough solution to the problem of sin. If you don't have a good enough solution, you either have to say there is no problem, I'm better than I know I am, or I'm going to try and make some solution myself to be a good person. It doesn't work. And the good news is that we do have a good enough solution. Jesus Christ lifted up for our salvation. Let's look to him. And looking to Jesus means not looking to others as if they could solve our deepest problems. As we've seen, we live in a society which doesn't look to Jesus for salvation. There's lots of other things on offer. I don't know, maybe it's your bank balance, uh, the promise of a future inheritance perhaps, that you put your hope in for the future. Maybe it's, it's those government institutions that you know are going to be there for you. Or just the hope of human progress, that we will deal with all of our struggles in the world. This 2020 has helped us to realise that many of those things are not reliable at all. But also, we need to realise that we've relied on them for the wrong things as well. They're kind of often desperately hoping that we're going to have this quiet and comfortable life. It's just an illusion. Jesus is offering us much more. He's offering us eternal life in all its fullness. The promise which is sure and steadfast, not subject to change. As we conclude, we need to address what happened to this bronze serpent and to our friend Nicodemus. So the bronze serpent got a name. It's called Nehushtan. So good fact for you. Um, but ended up as an idol uh, in the years after King David uh, the Jewish people took this bronze serpent into the temple and, and idolised it, worshipped it which perhaps is just a reminder to us of how fickle we are and, and that we're so prone to that persisting lack of faith Nicodemus on the other hand Nicodemus listened to what Jesus had to say at this time. Because when Jesus was lifted up on that cross, Nicodemus was there and he was looking on. And as Jesus died, he took down the body of Christ and buried him. Not running away as others did. Perhaps showing some faith that this was not the end of the story. But this week, let us look to Jesus lifted up for our salvation in your personal suffering and as you confront the reality of your sin resist the temptation to turn to yourself or turn to others or other idols but look to Jesus lifted up for our salvation the only solution to our deepest problems let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. We thank you that this means that we can be truly real with you. We don't have to pretend, we can give up the act. We can come for you as we are, more loved than we ever dared hope. Um, perhaps the true solution to our self-esteem, desires, 
Father God, help us to look to Jesus, looking away from ourselves and other idols. Let's look to Jesus, lift up for our salvation. Help us to cling to him through all the trials of this week, this, these months, and whatever faces us in the future. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.